Hello, Julia. Hello. All right. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you and most of our listeners are familiar with the Oak Leaf Trail. Yeah, I use it all the time. So the Oak Leaf Trail is a multi-use trail system with over 135 miles of trails for walking, hiking, biking, and rollerblading that wind their way all across Milwaukee County. So for today's, for today's talk, I thought we'd do something a little different than what we normally do. Today, I thought we'd go on a virtual walking tour along the Milwaukee River line of the Oak Leaf Trail. A walking tour of the mind, so to speak. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm a frequent user of the trail, and one day while I was walking and thinking about one of our other podcasts, it struck me that I could actually see what I was thinking about from the trail. That led me to realize there are a number of different historic sites and buildings right next to the Oak Leaf Trail. So the section of trail that you and I are going to explore today begins in downtown Milwaukee at the corner of Michigan Street and Lincoln Memorial Drive and travels north through the city and then through Shorewood and up to Whitefish Bay, roughly parallel to the Milwaukee River. It's a pretty long walk. So you up for it, Julia? Yeah. All right. Let's let's, let's, let's do it. <laughs> All right, so to begin with, the first and foremost historical aspect of the trail is that today's journey will be on a section that was at one time a freight and passenger railroad line owned by the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad. Railroad history can be pretty complicated, so I'll try to make it as simple as I can. What eventually became the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad that ran through Milwaukee has its roots in earlier railroads that were begun in the 1850s and was the first to directly connect Milwaukee with Chicago. By the 1880s, the Chicago Northwestern was one of two dominant railroads serving Milwaukee, the other one being the Milwaukee Road. In 1888, the company began construction of a signature passenger train station at the foot of Wisconsin Avenue. And that station was roughly where the building housing of the Betty Byrne Museum stands today. The station, called the Lakefront Depot, was designed in a Romanesque architectural style constructed of red brick, brownstone, and ornamental terracotta. The exterior had an L-shaped layout with a number of round arches and a 234-foot-tall clock tower. The interior of the station housed the ticket office, baggage claim, telegraph office, a restaurant, and of course the passenger waiting room complete with a large fireplace. And the second floor was a hotel that featured a bridal suite. As, far, as part of its first-class passenger service, the railroad operated trains that would connect passengers to a number of destinations in the Midwest, including Chicago, the Twin Cities, the UP, and even South Dakota. And in its heyday, the Lakefront Depot served 98 trains a day. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. In 1935, the Chicago Northwestern debuted what became its most famous passenger train, the legendary 400, that ran between Chicago and the Twin Cities with a stop in Milwaukee. The train was called the 400 because it could make the trek from Chicago to St. Paul in only 400 minutes, or roughly six and a half hours. Most significantly, the 400 was one of the fastest trains in the world at that time. Time Magazine described the 400 as, quote, the fastest train scheduled on the American continent, fastest in all the world on a stretch over 200 miles. And our virtual walk takes place along the same stretch of land where these amazing trains once ran. Despite its luxurious amenities and speed, the public lost interest in long-distance passenger trains like the 400 in the years immediately following World War II. 
Chicago Northwestern began to gradually reduce service after the war and then drastically slashed its passenger service by 1956. Shortly before midnight on May 15, 1966, the last Chicago and Northwestern passenger train arrived in Milwaukee. Once the passengers had left the station, the lights were turned off and the doors were locked forever. Shortly after closing, the depot was bought by Milwaukee County. They saw the land that the station stood on as becoming part of its ambitious lakefront freeway plan. The county had no desire to maintain or restore what they thought what they saw as a useless impediment to progress. There had been some efforts to save the station or maybe just the clock tower, but they all fell short of the funds needed to either restore or move the building. For over two years, the station sat silent without any heat, without any maintenance, and was subject to the weather coming off Lake Michigan. And so in 1968, what had once been an elegant gateway to Milwaukee fell victim to the wrecking ball. That's so sad. It's one of my least favorite endings. Yeah, it is It is extremely sad, and it was a very cool building that we lost. But kind of on the flip side and on the bright side, it was kind of the catalyst that started a lot of the historic preservation movement in Milwaukee. Yeah, which is a good, I mean, it saves a lot of other things. Right, so its death led to the preservation of other things. So <laughs> keeping it on the bright side, yeah, I guess. Yeah, glass half So as we walk north, our next historic site is the War Memorial Building. Following World War II, rather than erecting statues or a flagpole or a static memorial, Milwaukee envisioned creating a memorial whose mission is to honor the dead and serve the living, and it was to be executed in a post-war modernist design. The architect chosen for the project was Aero Saarinen. Saarinen was a Finnish-American architect who'd grown up with an architect father and a textile artist mother. Saarinen is one of the most significant post-war modernist architects of the mid-20th century. He began his design education at the prestigious Cranbrook Academy in Michigan, where his father was the dean of the school. In fact, as a student, Arrow actually designed some of the furniture for his own school. After further education at Yale and in Paris, Saarinen embarked on a career designing both furniture and buildings. Some of his significant furniture designs are the womb chair designed in the mid-1940s and his futuristic tulip chairs designed in the mid-1950s, which are still made and sold today. His architectural contributions are even more impressive. They include the stunning biomorphic TWA terminal at JFK Airport, the graceful terminal at Dulles Airport, the monolithic CBS building in New York City, and of course, his iconic stainless steel gateway arch in St. Louis. The War Memorial was designed by Saarinen in 1952 and was constructed on a bluff overlooking Lake Michigan between 1955 and 1957. Before the Art Museum addition of the 1970s, the building used to cantilever out into open space, protruding over the lake several stories above the ground. In 1959, a colorful mosaic by local artist Edmund Lewandowski was added to the front facade of the building. The 1.4 million pieces of tile and glass in shades of purples, blues, reds, and black spell out the beginning and ending dates of the U.S. involvement in World War I and the Korean War. It's one of my favorite buildings downtown. I mean, it's one of my favorite buildings in Milwaukee, and I wish it still had its sort of cantilever moment. Yeah, it's really old pictures. It's stunning. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it, it is. It's just the experience of it is different, and so I think it... It's easily overshadowed by the art museum 
uh, call a trauma edition, which is beautiful, but it's sort of beautiful in its own right in a very different way. Which is exactly like, why I brought up this building instead yeah. of that building in yeah. this talk. It no. it plays second fiddle, but it was, I mean, it was really the first modernist building in Milwaukee. Yeah. And by a very, very significant architect. I mean, yeah. And that's the other thing I would say is if you've never been, um, you can go to Cranbrook and tour the school and they have a, like an art gallery and his mom made textiles there. They have a right. meeting studio. Like they, they kind of, all of the Serenids left all their little yeah. fingerprints all over everything. Yeah. I mean, he and Eames were buddies together yeah. at the school. I mean, it was, yeah. it's got a great, that alone has a great history yeah, as well. Definitely. So as we pass under the Mason Street Bridge, keep in mind that at the turn of the century, we are stand where we are standing would have been train tracks, and the lake at Lake Michigan shoreline would have just been feet away from us. It wasn't until 1907 that construction of Lincoln Memorial Drive started, with the Mason Street Bridge over the railroad tracks. Uh, for over 20 years, landfill was dumped into the lake at the foot of the bluff to create and extend Lincoln Memorial Drive all the way up to Kenwood Boulevard. It also created the parkland that we know of today as Veterans Park, McKinley Beach, and Bradford Beach, although it did take all the way until the early 1980s to actually complete Veterans Park. And speaking of Veterans Park, on the other side of Lincoln Memorial Drive, we can see Milwaukee's Vietnam Memorial. The memorial, which was dedicated in 1991, features three red granite columns that represent those killed in action, POW MIAs, and those who returned from the war. Five granite benches represent the branches of the U.S. military, and the 11 granite posts that encircled the memorial signify each official year of the war. As we head north, and as we pass the stairs heading up the bluff at the Lake Bluff condominiums, look towards the bluff and into the woods. They're a little hard to see, especially with the leaves out, but there are two concrete pillars with reinforcing bars sticking out at the top of them. Those pillars were once footings for the Layton School of Art, which was constructed on this site in 1951. It was a mid-century modern building made primarily of concrete with steel reinforcement. The exterior featured bays of large plate glass windows in stainless steel frames on the first floor, and the upper three floors had glass block curtain walls with smaller plate glass windows. Unfortunately, the building was torn down in 1970, prematurely if you ask me. It fell victim to Milwaukee's audacious plans for the Park East Freeway that was supposed to run from I-43, right where Ogden Avenue is, and connect here at the lake, where Lincoln Memorial Drive was also to be transformed into a freeway. I'm so glad that didn't happen. Yeah. The Layton School of Art was forced to find new quarters and eventually found a home in the Third Ward, under the new name MIAD, the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. And thanks to a virtual citizens of revolt, the Parkies Freeway never made it to the lake, and Lincoln Memorial Drive was never turned into a freeway. Thank goodness. As our path slowly rises above Lincoln Memorial Drive, take note that to our left and at the top of the bluff is Prospect Avenue. In the late 1800s, Prospect Avenue was Milwaukee's Gold Coast. It was a continuous line of Victorian-era mansions that were owned by the upper crust of Milwaukee society. Today, there are only a handful of those mansions that still exist, particularly on the eastern or bluff side of Prospect Avenue. Two that do remain are the Gall Mansion and the Goodrich Mansion, now the Milwaukee Conservatory of Music. It was after World War II that a second wave of construction along Prospect lasted from the 1950s and 60s all the way until today. 
Lots that once housed those magnificent single-family mansions gave way to high-rise apartments and condominiums. One of the oldest, oldest examples that we're walking by is the Newport that was built in 1961. It's the one with light-colored brick and seafoam green accents. Another is the Prospect Towers, also built in the 1960s, and the Landmark, built in the 1980s. And one of the newest is the North Tower of St. John's on the Lake, which was just completed in 2022. Where St. John's is, and before the fork in the trail, we can look down the bluff and through a break in the trees at what is today's Collectivo Coffee at the lake. That magnificently restored Cream City brick building with lots of round Romanesque arches and windows was built in 1888. And it was built for a purpose that you probably never guess just by looking at it. You see, by 1888, Milwaukee was facing a major pollution problem. From the time that Byron Kilbourne dammed the Milwaukee River at North Avenue all the way back in the 1840s, the river below the dam essentially became an open sewer for Milwaukee's industrial, domestic, and animal waste. An 1881 Harper's Monthly article described the Milwaukee River to a national audience. They described it as a narrow, torturous stream hemmed in by the unsightly rear ends of street buildings and all sorts of waste places. It is a currentless and yellow, murky stream with water-like oil and an odor combined of the effluvia of a hundred sewers. Nice. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> and the locals simply referred to it as the river nuisance. So by 1888, the city had devised a plan to clean up the river. Rather than create a plan to simply not pollute the river, the plan they came up with instead was to flush the river clean exactly like a toilet. The goal of the project was to suck in clean Lake Michigan water and then pump it through a tunnel with such volume and such force as to literally flush the Milwaukee River clean. So crews began dig digging a 2,500-foot-long tunnel from an inlet here at McKinley Marina through the bedrock below the east side to an outlet just below the North Avenue Dam. The tunnel was 12 feet in diameter, and lined with brick. And if you're familiar with the east side, it ran directly below Cane Place from the lake to the river. Along the lake shore, they then built this Cream City brick building that housed what was literally the world's largest water pump. The enormous steam-driven pump was designed by E.P. Alice's Reliance Works, and it was designed to pump 40,000 cubic feet of water every minute. When the project was completed and they turned on the system in September of 1888, the system worked better than anyone had anticipated. Within 13 minutes, water began gushing into the river just below the dam, and what had been a stagnant lagoon suddenly began to develop a strong current. This little flushing station was able to replace the entire volume of water in the river from the dam all the way to the mouth of the river within 24 hours each and every day. And so the result was a much cleaner river. Sure, but? Well, because I feel like emphasizing the positive t today, I'm just going to ignore the fact that the displaced muck simply went untreated and out into Lake Michigan, where we drew our drinking water from. Okay. But we won't talk about that today. No, that's a whole other uh, episode. <laughs> All right, let's keep walking north. As we pass under the Lafayette Place Prospect, and then Farwell Bridges, take a look up and to your right. There are two large buildings, one with a red brick interior, exterior and the other made of concrete. 
The red brick building with those huge windows was built in 1915 as an assembly plant for the Ford Motor Company. Starting with Model T's, Ford built cars at this location all the way until the U.S. entered World War II. Then in 1942, the building was sold to the U.S. government and then leased to the A.O. Smith Company for wartime production. The second concrete building was built in 1945, also for war production. So UWM has owned the building since 1971, and they've used them for storage, garage space, and printing services until it was redeveloped in 2006. The $68 million project now houses the Peck School of the Arts, the Jan Sarah Entertainment Venue, student housing, and retail space. Okay, let's keep walking. I suppose it's worth noting that all these bridges that we're walking under at Lafayette, Farwell, Prospect, Oakland, North, Bellevue, and Park were all built at the turn of the century, right around 1902 to be specific. Prior to that time, the railroad tracks ran at, ran at street level and were causing all kinds of traffic problems on the east side. The solution was to lower the bed of the railroad tracks by over 25 feet and build bridges at all the street crossings. The result was this limestone-walled canyon that we're in today. As we cross under the Park Street Bridge, we see the Urban Ecology Center on our right, and to our left is Riverside Park. You may not realize it today, but Riverside Park was one of three parks in Milwaukee that were designed and built by the firm of legendary landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted. Those parks were Lake Park, Riverside Park, and Washington Park. In the 1890s, Olmsted and his firm first designed Lake Park, followed by Riverside Park, with Newberry Boulevard connecting the two parks. Olmsted designed Newberry with a broad tree canopy and planted medians, which connected the two parks and the lake and the river with green space. Okay, let's be frank. Riverside Park was once a much more elegant and developed park than it is today. At the turn of the century, Riverside Park stretched from the intersection of Newberry and Oakland Avenue all the way to the river. There were illuminated carriage roads and walking paths, canoe slips on the river, and a two-story pavilion that hosted concerts at night. And one of the park's signature features was the stone arched tunnel that ran under the railroad tracks and connected the eastern half of the park to the Milwaukee River on the west. And its remnants are actually still there today. Yeah, so when we pass under the wooden footbridge, there are two fenced-in sections of garden spaces on the western or the left side of the path. There's a gap between the two fenced-in sections, and if you walk between them and towards the wooded ravine, you can actually stand on top of what once was that stone tunnel portal. Cool. Yeah. So what we see today is much different than when the park was first built. In the 1970s, the entire eastern half of the park was turned into the Riverside Athletic Fields, and the carriage tunnel was filled in. As we keep walking north, we pass under the Locust Street Bridge. And where the power lines cross the path and the river, there's a gap in the trees where we can look across to the west side of the river. Across the river, we can see a massive five-story, 59,000-square-foot brick building. And at first glance, it actually reminds me of, like, the, the, the field house in Madison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nice. That is the Riverside Pumping Station owned by the city of Milwaukee Waterworks. It was built in 1921 to provide additional fresh water for the growing city. It once housed three massive coal-powered steam engines that stood four stories high 
and could pump nearly 70 million gallons of water per day. Those pumps were decommissioned and removed in 1968. They were replaced by seven electric-powered pumps that are still in use today. Now, interestingly, due to the loss of all the major tanneries downtown, the loss of three of the four major breweries, the drop in Milwaukee's population, and successful water conservation efforts, this station actually pumps only half of what it once did in 1968. I mean, some of those are bad. Like losing breweries and population, but I mean, tanneries were super polluted. And oh, yeah. Water conservation is good. So it's like, it's good that it only requires half for some things, but you know, too bad that we're not. But water conservation is probably the most important. Yeah, so, I just thought it was fascinating that it's yeah. pumping half of what it did really over 50 years ago. Hmm. So, continuing along the trail and heading towards Shorewood. Keep in mind that at the turn of the century, this stretch of the river once was home to a number of ice harvesting operations. Uh, the Wisconsin Lakes Ice Company and the Schlitz Brewery owned and operated ice warehouses above the river and on the bluffs of both sides of the river where we're walking today. Now, our next point of interest is Hubbard Park. From our earlier story about the flushing station, we know that south of the North Avenue Dam, the Milwaukee River was repurposed for industrial mills and factories and for waste. But above the dam, the river was all about leisure and recreation. There were swimming schools, canoe and rowboat rentals, steamboat rides, parks, beer gardens, and even an amusement park. Hubbard Park's story goes all the way back to 1872 when Frederick Ludeman opened up part of his 33-acre farm to the public which allowed for Milwaukeeans to picnic along the banks of the Milwaukee River. Four years later, a fellow named Otto Zweich bought the farm and turned it into a riverside resort called Mineral Spring Park. Zweich was in the modern water business, and so he took advantage of a natural spring on the property, which he named Apollo Spring. He bottled the water and sold it at his resort. He also built a two-story hotel that offered a restaurant, dance pavilions, parlors, and a billiard hall. He provided areas for swimming and boating, fishing, outdoor tables and benches, as well as scenic walking paths. He sold the property around 1900, at, and so what had been a tranquil resort was transformed into a loud and raucous amusement park called Coney Island, and then renamed Wonderland in 1905. The amusement park featured an illuminated tower coupled with hundreds of light bulbs. And it had all kinds of exciting rides, including a Ferris wheel, a roller coaster, a giant water slide called the Chutes. The park also featured vaudeville acts and a daredevil who would plummet from the illuminated tower onto a trampoline below. Uh, the time before litigious activity, where you just get sick Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then in 1909, the park changed hands. It was renamed Ravenna Park, or Ravenna Park. The new owners added a miniature railroad movies, circus acts, and even a death-defying motorcycle racing board track called a motordrome. Unfortunately, all the fun came to an end in 1917 when the village of Shorewood refused to renew the park's annual operating license. During the 1930s, there was renewed interest in Hubbard Park, and thanks to New Deal projects, there were a number of improvements made to the park. In 1936, three new buildings were constructed by the Works Progress Administration, or WPA. There was the Warming Pavilion, which is closest to the river. Second was the Shorewood Community Room, which is now called the Shorewood River Club. 
and the third was the Scout Craft Cabin, which was built for both the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Today we call that building the Hubbard Park Lodge. All three of these buildings were built using salvaged brick from the National Guard Armory that once stood at the corner of Capitol and Oakland Avenue and was torn down in 1931. WPA workers also graded and terraced the park, created walking paths, and if I'm not mistaken, they built the pedestrian tunnel that gives visitors access to the park buildings from the parking lot. Shortly after we passed by Hubbard Park, the Shorewood Department of Public Works buildings are on our right. The complex hosts a number of maintenance and storage buildings and an incinerator, but it's the main administration building that is the most impressive. That building is done in a neo-Gothic, almost high Victorian Gothic style that features turrets, battlements, parapets, carved stone decorations, and a multicolored brick that creates a rich polychromatic facade. It's a pretty impressive building considering where it's located and what it was built for. As we continue on our journey north, and as we cross Capitol Drive on the pedestrian bridge, take a look at the white office building with blue accent stripes and blue tinted windows that is just to our right and across the street. That was once the offices of Brooks Stevens Industrial Design Firm. Brooks Stevens was a pioneer in the field of industrial design. In his nearly 50-year career, he designed over 3,000 products for over 600 clients. So even if you're not familiar with who Brooks Stevens was, I'm guessing you probably recognize at least some of the things he designed and a number of the companies he did work for. Some of his most familiar designs include the original Jeep Wagoneer, the Miller Beer logo, the Milwaukee Road Hiawatha trains, the Milwaukee School of Engineering logo, and the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. You know, just some really casual, really like low-profile things. Right. <laughs> and in addition to those, his long list of clients included 3M, Patrick Cudahy, Evinrude, Alice Chalmers, Sears, Briggs & Stratton, S.C. Johnson, and Harley-Davidson. Now, as we cross Capitol Drive, we're now at the foot of the tallest structure in Milwaukee, and that is the WITA, WITI Fox 6 TV Tower. This tower was completed in August 1962 at a height of 1,078 feet. And at the time, it was actually the tallest freestanding tower in the world, if you can believe that, but only for a brief period of time. The tower it surpassed in height was the Tokyo Tower. And soon after losing the title to Milwaukee, the Japanese quickly decided to increase the height of their tower by about 30 feet to regain the title. And to put it in comparison, that tower, our tower, is 1,078 feet high. The U.S. Bank building is only 601 feet high. So, yeah, so, yeah, it's a third taller. Throughout the 1960s into the 1970s, the tower was fitted with over 2,000 25-watt light bulbs that created a huge number six sign at night. I suppose it looked pretty impressive, but because of falling ice from the tower, the light bulbs needed to be constantly replaced. The lights stayed on until the energy crisis of the mid-1970s, when at the suggestion of a viewer, they were turned off forever. Just past the tower, on the left-hand side of the trail, is the Kilbourne Townhouse. This is one of the best examples of mid-19th century Greek Revival architecture in all of Milwaukee. It's a one-and-a-half-story house that features white clabbered siding, 
low-hipped roofs, and four fluted door columns that support the roof over the porch. The house was built by Benjamin Church for he and his family in 1844, making it one of the oldest buildings in the area. However, it was not built where it stands today. When it was built, way back in 1844, it was originally located in the heart of Kilbourne Town at the corner of Val Phillips and Court Street, just a few blocks north of where the Pfizer Forum is today. By the 1930s, the house had fallen into disrepair and into the hands of the city of Milwaukee due to tax delinquency. In 1936, the house was examined by the New Deal era Historic American Buildings Survey, and it was determined that the house was of historical significance and should be saved. And so in 1938, WPA carpenters and craftsmen moved the house from downtown and restored it at its present location in Estabrook Park. Today, the house is owned by the Milwaukee County Historical Society and is open to the public from June through September on Sundays. So as we continue on the trail and get close to the Estabrook Beer Garden, we're at our last topic of conversation for today, Julia. Back in 1873, a local manufacturer of concrete sewer pipe named Joseph Berthollet discovered that areas along the Milwaukee River were sitting on a rare and valuable deposit of what is called hydraulic cement limestone. That's rock that could be that could yield high-quality cement needed for the production of concrete. Sure. He began a long and solitary search for a location where this rock formation was both close to the surface and on land that was available for sale. He found such land right here, north of Capitol Drive and along the river where we are in Estabrook Park. He shared his secret with a few close friends in the business community, and together they formed the Milwaukee Cement Company, which then managed to buy most of the land along the banks of the river from Capitol Drive all the way to Port Washington Road. Between 1876 and 1909, the company actually rerouted the river to expose the cement-rich limestone rock below. They quarried both the riverbed and its banks to yield as much as 475,000 barrels or 125 million pounds of cement per year. By 1881, the Milwaukee Cement Company was the largest producer of natural cement in the entire United States. Yeah, bet you didn't know that. No, I didn't. Unfortunately, the invention of the rotary kiln using the production of Portland cement, or man-made cement, put natural cement manufacturers like the Milwaukee Cement Company at a disadvantage. And by 1909, the company's two mills along the Milwaukee River ceased operations. Most of the land that had been owned by the company was sold to Milwaukee County, and in 1916, it became Estabrook Park. They did. They tore down all the buildings and then the holes that were left mm -hmm. uh, because they were a, a dangerous swimming hazard because people sure. were drowning yeah, yeah. Uh, when they were swimming where they're not supposed to. Right. They were both filled in okay. in later years. And one of them, in fact, is the UWM parking, uh, oh. the, that, that parking lot out yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. So those are our stories for today, Julia. Excellent. And tell you what, we're just a few feet away from that beer garden I talked about. How about we get some cold refreshment? Yeah, that's probably there for sure. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Julia.